Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridgeline from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is episode 714. It is August 1st, 2011. It is a Monday, and that means we're going to do Listener Feedback Monday. This is going to be a monster of a show, man. I have a ton of stuff put aside to go through today. Today's show might go long, but I'm going to give you a lot of material. I get so many emails. I'm trying to you know, do a better job of answering more of them without doubling up on these types of shows each week, especially with all the great interviews I have coming up. I'm trying to keep the show kind of in a constant flow. Uh, so I don't want to have like, you know, this type of show become a two or three a day week event, which is the only way I can do them all. So I'm just going to do more on the Mondays, give you a longer show with more stuff. Before we do that though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day today, number one, is Ready Made Resources. What more can you ask from a company than to say, hey, here's our name, our name is what we do, and then they do it, and they provide all the resources you need for your prepping, ready made, ready to go. You click, you point, you order on their website, and next thing you know, the stuff you need for your prepping shows up at your front door. To find out more, check out readymaderesources.com or click on their banner on our site at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Remember, using the banner on our site is the best way to make sure you are dealing with the proper survival podcast sponsor. Next up today, bulkammo.com. You know, I talk a lot about silver and gold, where there's another precious metal I suggest that you add. That is copper jacketed lead, and I suggest you add that to your preps. That's because your guns without ammunition are nothing but really expensive clubs. So check out Bulk Ammo today. All the common calibers you can think of in stock, ready to go. Lightning flat, fast shipping and really great service from Bulk Ammo. Remember, Bulk Ammo does provide a special deal for members of the Support Brigade. So if you're going to buy from them before you do, make sure you log into the Member Support Brigade and get the special deal that they have for you. Next up today, um, I want to remind you to connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and the forum. Those are the best social media outlets to stay in touch with us. And as you might notice, I'm really going through the housekeeping quick today. That's because I have a special announcement for you. One of the uh, most popular guests we've ever had on the show is Stephen Harris. Uh, and he'll be coming back soon. I'm getting tons of questions for him on his follow-up interview. But he came to me and he said, uh, I want to do something special for the Members Support Brigade beyond the discount I'm already doing. He's doing 15% off all his DVDs, downloads, movies, that type of thing. Everything except like the rocket stoves and stuff like that. He said, what about one week I give away Bread from Gasoline, which is my uh, my online downloadable uh, movie. It's 95 minutes. I've looked at it, watched the whole thing. It's amazing. All of the information packed in there. And, you know, it's kind of like all on one thing, how to make bread in an emergency. But he shows you all these different ways to do it. And, of course, you can do anything with these different methods of alternative energy production. It normally sells for $34.95. Members of the MSB get it this week only for 5 bucks. All right, so a $34.95 video this week only for 5 bucks. I usually don't do stuff like that in the MSB. But he said, if I'm going to do this, you got to do something for me. you got to come up with some way to incentivize people that aren't in the MSB to get in the MSB. And I said, I just did a sale. I wasn't going to do any more to fall. He said, come on, you want this? You know, 
quid pro quo kind of thing. I said, okay, here's what I'll do. This week, new members only. I cannot do this retroactively and extend memberships and manual process, that type of thing. This is for new members only this week, 20% off any membership in the MSB between now and Friday. So the same days you can get the, the uh, Bread from Gasoline download for five bucks. You can also get 20% off any membership term. That includes one month, but of course you get a bigger discount off a one-year membership. It does not apply to recurring. The recurring rate will be the normal rate. If you don't want to renew, of course, after you sign up, anytime before your renewal, you can cancel. So there you go. That's a big one. Okay, and still with all that added in, we are done in under five minutes. And remember, if you do join the MSB, not only do you get this great deal from Steven, you get discounts from 29 vendors, you get... Um, over $100 worth of free ebooks, and you support the show at 20 cents an episode. Now on with the show. Uh, as I said, I do have a ton of stuff today. I'm going to go a little faster than normal because I want to cover more material. I want to make these uh, listener feedback shows a little bit more engaging, interesting, and give you more uh, for the time you spend with me. So the first one comes from Wayne. Wayne says, I have a quick question for you, Jack. I'm planting a raised bed garden or two. Uh, and for soil, I was wondering if it's okay to use mushroom soil. I have a place nearby that sells mushroom soil, but I don't know anything about it. It must be some kind of rich nutrient soil, right? Would it be good for the run-of-the-mill garden, or is soil more specific to a few plants and veggies? I'm new to gardening. I learned a lot from your podcast. Great videos. Love the info you give out. Thanks for waking up my mind and helping me to live a better life. Well, Wayne and everybody else, mushroom soil is a great soil amendment. I would not fill my entire raised bed with nothing but mushroom soil. And to be more specific, I would not, if I'm building a raised bed, I wouldn't do it 100% with any single source. Uh, there's a great compost facility here in Hot Springs, of, uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, that I can go get compost for free if I load it myself. I will use a ton of it, probably more than most people would ever use of compost in the raised beds I'm doing for the Hugel Culture beds about midway through this month. I won't do 100% because it's one source. You are always going to be deficient in something if you go to a single source. But mushroom soil itself is an outstanding soil amendment. What mushroom soil actually is, it's a byproduct of mushroom farming. So the mushroom farmers get straw and wood chips or whatever they can get their hands on that they're growing their particular mushrooms in, and they inoculate them with mushroom spores. And then the mycelium, which is actually the real fungus, grows in there, and then eventually it fruits. So the mushrooms, the fruit, and the little web-like white mycelium that runs through the media is the actual fungus. Well, fungus, in the words of Jeff, Jeff Lawton, are the teeth of the forest. They're what builds all the soil in the forest. So the, you couldn't do better for soil than mushroom soil. It's just that because it comes from a, you know, if it comes from a mushroom farm, there's probably two or three things they use that they grow their mushrooms in. So you might be deficient in some, some different nutrients and things like that. So you always want to improve the fertility of any soil, even if it's high in compost with, with, uh, with things that provide additional nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Blood and bone would be one example. Fermented beet molasses. Um, you know, comfrey compost. There's all kinds of things you can do that makes that black stuff, worm, uh, worm drippings from worm farms or worm castings. There's all, you know, worm tea, compost tea, all these things to boost stuff is you need more fertility. But as a base, mushroom soil would be as good as anything else. If you can get your hands on it, especially affordably, it's really a good idea to do. 
All right, next one comes from Tom, and I just want to read some listener stories today on some various things, and here's one of them. Tom says, uh, I'm considering a fast and radical lifestyle downsizing for my wife and I that will be financially devastating. I respect your views and opinions and would like to get your thoughts. Here's the situation. Five years ago, my wife and I had it made. Big house, big payment, little down payment. 401k, a couple of kids in college plus loans, a couple of nice cars, and nice car payments. Visa, MasterCard, you know the drill. As an over-the-road trucker, I had made good money and made it home every weekend, and life was good. Between the two of us, we made over $90,000 a year. You can live like a king on $90,000 a year in northern Wisconsin. Now, five years later, we've had some curveballs. Between the economy and my wife's bone cancer diagnosis, and man, I'm so sorry to hear that, and my thoughts go out to you. And subsequent tw- treatment, a stem cell transplant, the 401k is nearly gone. I'm getting home four or five days a month, and the house is needing repairs. I can't keep up with or afford. 51, my wife is 59. Her cancer is treatable but not curable. Although we pray for another 30 years, average survival is six and a half years for what she has. We are almost two years into it. She still works full time and I'm staying out longer, but we are considering something drastic along the line of renting a small apartment or house, selling most of the stuff in a big house, trying to sell the house. I would take a local job. Our income would take a substantial drop. If we can't sell the house in three months, we will have to deal with the consequences. Going bankrupt would be a risk. I'm really struggling with this one, and every day that passes is a day we will never get back. We'll probably never be the couple with the silver hair and bare feet going for a walk on the sandy beach, but we still have time to build something together. Your thoughts would be valuable to me. Also, other TSP listeners might learn something from this discussion. Sorry about the long question, and thanks for your show, Tom in Wisconsin. Tom, first, let me again say my heart goes out to you, and there's nothing I can say to fix things or really make them better. I just can't. I don't have that power. If I did, I would be happy to use it. Uh, and to your wife, my thoughts, my prayers go with her, and I hope that she makes this journey as best as any of us could, and I'm sure she'll make it in a way that all of us wish we hope we can when, when it comes to our time. And we will all face the reality of mortality at some point. Personally, this is how I feel. But this is personal, and you have to make it for yourself. Whatever you can do to spend more time together, do it. Um, you know, try not to ruin your future if you don't think she's gonna, you know, she's got, you know, average survival rate of six years and you're two years into it, that's four years. Don't do things that make it very, very difficult for you financially when this is over, but this is the kind of thing bankruptcies are made for. I mean, honestly, this is something that you, you do what you can, you get through it, but, but I will, tell you this if you do what you plan to do and you spend the last four years of your wife's life or you know god willing six or seven years or maybe more if you you know that's kind of a god thing that determines how that works out if you do that and you have you end up with just a little bit left at the end of it but you can go on with your life and basically live a decent life and you kind of get rid of all of this mess behind you even if you have to do it through the court system uh you won't regret it if you stay gone 25 out of 30 days of the month and you don't get to spend this last bit of time with your wife you will regret it That's that's all I can say about that. So I would figure out how to do it as best you can and I would I would I would put the planet to action while you can and while the quality of life is there because the two of you obviously married each other because you loved each other and this is a hard decision but I don't think there's a lot of other choices 
uh, because I think that when you're in this situation, the two of you are more important than what's around you. The lesson for everybody else, when I tell you that why we prepare is not just for the end of the world, but because we could have the death or illness of a loved one, this is a perfect example of that. And I, I wish I didn't kind of have to use it that way with the rest of the audience because I feel so bad for for Tom and for his wife. But he shared this for a reason because he wants you guys to understand that you don't want to be where he is. And, you know, these, these folks are in their 50s. And what I keep telling you is you need to have a plan shorter than 70 because you may not see it. And that may be the case here. He also leaves a little P.S. here. P.S. If anyone wants to bitch about the cost of eating organic, healthy food, ask them if they've seen the cost of cancer treatment lately. And I can't tell you that if you eat all organic or naturally grown foods and all that you're not going to get cancer, but I can tell you that my personal belief is you certainly reduce the risk and your body is better able to fight it if it happens. Tom, that's all I can say, man, is I'll tell you, I would do it. I would do it personally. I can't tell you what to do with your own life. And I would try to find some ways to mitigate the damage to your yourself financially. But if if I'm in this situation, my wife and my time with my wife is going to come before anything else. Okay, let's move on to another story. Um, this one comes from Ryan. And Ryan says... Uh, I thought this would interest you. Makes the contrarian in me a big part. Think there's a big opportunity for shaping up in productive rural land, and it's a link to a story on the AP. And the headline is "Rural U.S. Disappearing Population Share Hits Low." I'll read a little bit of this article to you, a few different parts of it. Rural America now accounts for just 16% of the nation's population, the lowest ever. The latest 2010 census numbers hint at an emerging America where, by mid-century, city boundaries become indistinct and rural areas grow even less relevant. Many communities could shrink to virtual ghost towns as they shutter as they shutter businesses and close down schools. Demographers, demographers, demographers say more metro areas are booming into sprawling metropolises, barring fresh investment. That could bring jobs. However, large swaths of the Great Plains and Appalachia, along with parts of Arkansas, Mississippi, and northern Texas, could face significant population declines. These places posted some of the biggest losses over the past decade as young adults left. The people who stayed got older, moving past childbearing years. For instance, in West Virginia, now with a median age of 41.3, the share of Americans 65 and older is now nearly double that of young adults, 18 to 24, 16% compared to 9%, according to the census figures released Thursday. In 1970, the shares of the two groups were roughly equal at 12%. This place ain't dead yet, but it's got about half a foot in the grave, said Bob Free, 61, of Modernville, West Virginia, which now has a population of just over 9,000. The big money jobs are all gone. We used to have the big mills and the rolling plants and stuff like that, and you could walk out of high school when you were 16 or 17 and get a $15 an hour job. Demographers put it a bit more formally. Some of the most isolated rural areas face major uphill battle, with a broad area of the country emptying out, said Mark Mather, Associate Vice President of the Population of Reference Bureau, a research group in Washington, D.C. Many rural areas can't attract workers because there aren't any jobs, and businesses won't relocate there because there aren't enough qualified workers, so they are caught in a downward spiral. You read the rest of the article if you want to on your own. It's a very long article. It goes into a lot of different things. But I agree, I see opportunity here. 
Let me tell you the, the reality. There is a growing segment of the population that has learned that as long as you have Internet access, you have opportunity for business and employment. And those are the people that you might see eventually moving into these areas. The problem for these areas is it's very hard to attract young people. There's a very small segment of 21-year-olds that want to go out and live out in the sticks. Very small. Some of them out there, some of them listen to this show, and you're going to email me today and say, I'm one of them, and I know you're there. I felt that way, too. But most of them can't afford to, even if it's cheap, because you can't even get a job. So they dream of it. Now, eventually they figure out, i got to get some money. So they start working, and they start working for the man, so to speak, and they start getting this thing called credit, and then they start buying stuff. And about 30, they're making so much money, they could, or 35 or 40, you know, they're making so much money, they could live out in one of these places like a king, like we heard from earlier, uh, And uh, but they can't afford to live there because they can't leave because they're stuck to the job and they're stuck to the debt, and they wonder how the hell they got there. That's part of this downward spiral. But for those of us who can figure this out and get out into these rural areas, there is tremendous opportunity there. What you're going to see, though, is a lot of places like where I'm at, Hot Springs, kind of have that that kind of dual-sided thing. There's all these little rural areas on the outskirts around them, and then there's still a sizable town, and there's still some opportunity there, and it's either tourist-based like it is in Hot Springs, or some are based on certain manufacturing uh, facilities that still exist and things like that. But the reality is that we're seeing kind of this, I've, I've been saying this forever, suburban death, and small-town death. And what we're seeing is that people are moving more and more to this urbanized, high-density population, way more dense than the suburbs. And that's what a lot of city planners want because they think it's more efficient and cuts carbon footprints, which we'll talk a little about today later on, and all this other stuff. So what do I, what do I actually think that we can take away from this? Our country's in deep shit. And I'll talk about some things in a bit that, that reiterate that. But this really isn't about whether a rural area declines or an urban area increases or something like that. This is really about the fact that our nation is cutting more and more back on actually building and creating stuff. The mills are gone. The factories are gone. This is this is the reality. And then, like they said, even though it's affordable to maybe set up a plant somewhere, nobody wants to set a plant up there because they can't get enough talent to come in and do the job. So it's the cart before the horse. I think there's opportunities, one, for people like us that want to get away. But I also think if companies would pull their head out of their fourth point of contact, if you'll go to some of these smaller communities and you'll set up businesses, uh, people will move there. And, and take jobs. And some of these companies that are looking to expand, a great way for them to make this happen is to move their new facility there and to pull some of their talent from multiple places. There's plenty of people that would like to relocate to these more uh, kind of laid-back, easier areas. But there's a, there's a trade-off there. If you move enough people into a rural area, what does that mean? It's not rural anymore. So when, when they look at some of the, the problems with studies like this, is that the people that are doing them don't live in the real world and don't understand simple things like, I may not want to grow a little bitty town, a little bitty hamlet very much. Um, I don't want it to grow because if I grow it, it stops being what it is. The problem is how do we figure out how to grow, how to keep it where it is without letting it grow too much because there's a fundamental in, in, in nature. 
If you're not in growth, you're in decline. And that applies to just about any kind of population or wilderness or soil or people or city or anything. Uh, a business, it always works that way. There has to be some growth or you go to decline. It's almost impossible to be completely level with anything. If, if, it, if you're going to keep level, basically you have to go through some cycles of growth and decline and growth and decline that, that stabilize and create a median. Um, so this is interesting. I just thought I'd bring it to your attention because it was sent to me by quite a few different people. But I do think it. if you are willing to be smart, save your money, and develop either an income stream or the, the lack of a need for a heavy income stream, I think there's going to be a lot of land out there to be bought, uh, especially if you're not right in the middle of Farm Central. Where And I think that that's, if you want to fix this, it's millions of small farms. Or at least hundreds and hundreds of thousands of small farms. Uh, probably at least a million of them. All over the place. Two, three, four, five acre operations. Because you know what? There's no such thing as growing too much food in this country to sell in this country. And what we have to do, though, is get people to once again value uh, Made in America. And how about, how about this for a slogan? Remember when everybody was proud of something Made in America? How about grown in America? I think that would be another thing maybe we need to bring back. Um, on a completely different note, showing that governments are concerned about disaster uh, more and more, uh, the state of New Hampshire, and this is on Daily Journal, uh, here's the headline, New Hampshire works to create database of every building that could be used as a shelter. Concord, New Hampshire, AmeriCorps volunteers armed with measuring tape spread out across New Hampshire in hopes of helping the state do a better job of keeping people warm, cool, and safe during weather or emer severe weather or emergencies. Department of Health and Human Services Emergency Services Unit is overseeing a project which involves taking an inventory of all buildings that can be used as general shelters, reception centers, cooling stations, or warming centers. The result will be a database that can be used by state and local emergency preparedness officials. Rick Cricks, Rick C. We'll call him Rick C. I can't pronounce his last name. Rick C., director of the Emergency Services Unit, said towns already are required to list possible shelters in their individual emergency preparedness plans, but the database project will consolidate all the information and more. AmeriCorps volunteers have been visiting the sites to take measurements and record information about parking, accessibility, backup power, and other features. What we're doing is trying to follow up and get a database complete with all information about their particular shelters so that if we're in an emergency situation, it becomes a little easier to understand the makeup of a shelter and the types of support we as a state may need to provide uh, to the town as the event goes on, he said. For example, if the state has more information about the size of a particular town school gymnasium, it can better anticipate the town may need extra cots during the ice storm. State officials have also had problems in the past getting detailed information about facilities in the middle of an emergency. Uh, this guy, Crenty, or whatever his name is, said, citing a February 2010 windstorm as an example. That storm caused more than $10 million in damage across six New Hampshire counties, blowing down trees and power lines, putting more than half the state in the dark. If you're scrambling to take care of people and get up and running, you don't want to have to talk to us. You don't want to talk to us on the phone, so we're trying to get ahead of the curve and get all the information ahead of time. Volunteers already visited and made appointments to visit about 100 of the state's 234 towns and cities. Uh, Corinthi estimates the database will include two, 400 to 500 sites, 
Schools are the most common shelter sites, but some communities use churches, town halls, fire departments, and other locations. Um, I'm sure the tinfoil hats among us will go, gee, they're gonna, they're gonna round us all up and lock us up in a school gymnasium. No. Um, they're, they're trying to be sure that, you know, in New Hampshire when it's like five, below zero and that's considered warm and people don't have heat that they can take care of them um i you know never trust government that much but i guarantee the same people that will say look what they're doing man would be like they're not prepared at all man if uh, something happened and they had no place for people to go the main reason i put this on the show today though is if the state of new hampshire is concerned about this maybe we should be concerned about it in our own communities and our own towns and doing it for ourselves and not relying on our government to do it for us let the government do what the government does, but we do need to build community, just like we talked about with Stuart Rhodes of Oath Keepers on Friday, um, and make sure that we have plans for ourselves and where we're going to shelter and where we're going to go if we have to leave and other things like that. So I wanted you to know that. Um, the next one is, uh, well, it's uh, it's going to make you roll your eyes and go, What? I mean, we all know what Goldman Sachs does, at least we should by now, is, is the role in allowing the Treasury's bonds to be purchased by the Federal Reserve and making the little skim profit in between just for running the transaction and screwing the American people out of the American people's money. But And we all heard about things that you know Chase and other large financial organizations were doing in the silver market. But wait till you hear this one, and this one's out on Reuters. This 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 is actually reprinted on Yahoo Finance. London, Detroit, Reuters. In a rundown patch of Detroit enclosed by cyclone fence and barbed wire stands an unremarkable warehouse that investment bank Goldman Sachs has transformed into a money-making machine. Now they're in the warehouse business now. The derelict neighborhood off Michigan Avenue is a sharp contrast to Goldman's bustling skyscraper headquarters near Wall Street. But the two operations there are one important element. Management by the bank's savvy professional, uh, bank savvy uh, by the bank savvy financial professionals. A string of warehouses in Detroit, most of them operated by Goldman, has stockpiled more than a million tons of industrial metal aluminum, about a quarter of the global reported inventories. Simply storing all the metal generates millions of dollars in rental revenues for Goldman every year. See, they're not doing it to be nice, they're renting it to the suppliers as the space to stockpile the aluminum. Isn't that interesting? But there's just one problem. Much less aluminum is leaving the depots than arriving, creating a supply pinch for manufacturers of everything from soft drink cans to aircraft. The resulting spike in prices has sparked a clash between companies forced to pay more for their aluminum and wait months for it to be delivered. Goldman, which is keen to keep the cash machines humming, and the London Metal Exchange, and the world's benchmark industrial metals market, which critics accused of lax oversight. Analysts question why London's metal market allows big financial players like Goldman to own the warehouses, which store huge quantities of the metal even as they trade the commodity. Robin Barr, a veteran of metals metals analyst and credit allegory, I get, agricole, whatever that is. Oh, metals analyst at Craig... Credit Aragol in London says the conflict of interest is so acute he wants U.S. and European antitrust regulators to weigh in. 
I think it makes a mockery of the market. It's a shame, Barr said. This is an anti-competitive situation. It puts some companies at an advantage, and clearly the rest of the market at a disadvantage. It's a real, genuine concern, and I think the regulators have to look at it. You want to read the rest, you can, but let me explain to you just like the Jack Spirico version what's going on here. Goldman Sachs gets a whole bunch of warehouses and uses the money they got from the American people by screwing us over by making a profit on the U.S. Treasury bonds that they sold to the Ben Bernanke. Additionally, they got a whole bunch of money in bailout stuff, and they take all that money and they say, huh, what are we going to do with it now that the investment banking market sucks? I know what we'll do. We'll buy a whole bunch of wore-out, run-down warehouses in Detroit and Michigan and other places, and then what we'll do is we'll have people come in and store their aluminum there, and then as we manage those warehouses, we'll make sure we're bringing in more than goes out. We'll create a supply crunch in the aluminum industry, and before we'll do that, we'll go in and speculate on the aluminum market, betting the price of aluminum to go up that we know is going to go up, because we'll control 25% of the world's aluminum while we do this and they danced and fiddled while Rome burned so while your ass clown government is out there knocking around the debt ceiling talking about it like they're actually doing something on either side of it they've allowed once again the American people to be screwed because what happens when the cost of the aluminum goes up Well, the cost of everything that the aluminum touches goes up, so we see inflation. Additionally, Goldman gets to do something that if you did, you would go to freaking jail. They would put you under the jail if you managed to orchestrate something like this. And no one really cares. And I can tell you right now, no one's really going to do anything. And if they ever do unclog this thing, they will have already made tons and tons of money. And they'll be doing something else, and they'll never pay a consequence for this. And if they do, it'll be something stupid. It'll be like, you know, they will figure out that they made, you know, $500 million doing it, or a billion dollars doing it, or $5 billion doing it, and they'll get a fine for like $2 million. That's what will happen. So you want to read the rest of this article, you can. But again, that's what they're doing. They control the aluminum, and then they speculate on the aluminum. Um, this makes the stuff about speculating on oil look like a joke. It really does. I mean, there's oil coming in from all over parts of the world. There's all kinds of refineries. These clowns are sitting on, sitting on 25% of the global supply of aluminum sitting in warehouses in Detroit, Michigan, and they're being paid to hold on to it while they manipulate the supply, give some companies an advantage, and make a bunch of money in the metal exchange. Isn't that great? Thought that would make your Monday. Let's go take another one. What about a little good news? What if I told you we might be on the cusp, maybe, and it's a big ass maybe, of coming up with a vaccine that would protect people from all flus? Let me read this one to you. This is also from Reuters by Kate Kelland. Reuters scientists have found a, a flu super antibody called F16 that can fight all types of influenza A virus that cause disease in humans and animals and say their discovery may be a turning point for the development of new flu treatments. Researchers in Britain and Switzerland used a new method aimed at beating needle and haystack type odds and managed to identify an antibody from a human patient which neutralizes both main groups of influenza A viruses. Although it's an early step, they said it is an important one and in time may pave the way to the development of a universal flu vaccine. Vaccine makers currently have to change formulations of their flu shots every year to make sure they protect against the strains of the virus circulating. And you know they don't like to do that because it's not like they make lots and lots of money every single year by giving us the same vaccine. Oh, oh wait, wait, maybe they don't want to do this. Hmm. We'll see. Maybe this won't actually ever happen and maybe it actually would be a good thing and maybe not. I don't know, but 
you know, I'm not saying, you know, I just, I can't stand it when they make it like it's some big horrible thing that, uh, for Merck and, and, and whatnot. They have to come up with a new vaccine every year and sell billions of dollars worth of it, uh, to people all over the world. It's just terrible that they have to do that for them, you know. I mean, it's not like they, they like doing that or anything. Anyway, this is a cumbersome process which takes time and money. It doesn't take money. It makes money as far as the pharmaceutical companies are concerned, for God's sakes. So the goal is to come up with a universal flu vaccine that could help protect people from all flu strains for decades or even for life. Dozens of companies make influenza vaccines, including Sanofi, Glaxo, Klein, Smith, Norvotus, AstraZeneca, CSL. Left Merck out of there. Uh, as we saw with the 2009 pandemic, a comparatively mild strain of influenza could face a significant burden on emergency services. Yes, if you all act like stupid idiots in government and tell people they're going to die from the flu when they're not going to die from the flu because... Well, I'm going to... Gonna stay calm today. I really am. Uh, having a universal treatment which can be given in emergency circumstances would be an invaluable asset. Well, wait a minute. Why would we only do it in emergency situations if it would inoculate a person from flu for life? You can read the rest of this on on your own if you want to. I'll provide a link in today's show notes. But let me tell you the downside of this. So they find this universal flu antibody. Hmm. And they provide it to people, and people develop a resistance to the flu. Well, we can have one of two things happen. We can make flu go the way of smallpox, where there's almost no flu left anywhere in the world, and it might actually work. Or what could happen is that the flu can mutate to a strain that this antibody won't prevent, and the new strain and the rapid advancement in the mutation of the flu by screwing around with this could create the worst flu we've ever seen and kill hundreds and hundreds of millions of people. Now, I am not a scientist, you know, in spite of my stance on global warming that it's a big scam, and people tell me I need to be a scientist for that. No, I need to be able to look at facts. This I will leave to the realm of science because it's far more complex. But I do think it's something we really need to be careful with as we're jacking around with it, but it may really be a big, major advancement in the world of fighting diseases, and especially one of the most uh, rapidly spread infectious diseases in the world is flu. Uh, generally speaking, it, it doesn't really do a lot to, uh, to, you know, to kill a lot of people. The, when you look at the number of people that die from the flu globally, it looks like a big number. But if you look at the number of people that die globally from a cold or diarrhea, uh, it, those are also big numbers. So generally speaking, healthy people do not die from the flu. And sometimes we get specific uh, virulent strains of the flu that have higher death rates and higher mortality rates. But there always is the potential for something like the 1918 flu, which took out the healthiest of us because it basically turned your immune system against you. So the stronger your immune system, the stronger the flu's reaction. So just another one to take a look at. Um, Brian sends me an email and it says... Okay, we can all calm down now. This is the latest giant hole blown in the global warming conspiracy. Okay, and I do consider it a conspiracy. And, and I want to say something today. And I want to tell you something before I go into this. And I'm not going to go all nut job on you on this and, and snap out and get all angry. Uh, I'm not going to make fun of anybody. But I'm going to tell you the truth. I think the majority of you out there that believe in this global warming stuff are good people. And uh, you don't have any idea what the government's actually doing to you and how it's being used to impose a global taxation system. I want you to understand that all of the things that you actually want to do 
other than tax carbon, I want to do probably more than you do. I want solar panels or wind generation equipment on every home in America. I want them up and down the highways. I want to be independent from foreign sources of oil. I don't want to have to mine coal and remove the tops of mountaintops. I do not want to pollute streams. I am an environmentalist. I shower with a bucket so that water doesn't get wasted, and I take the reserve water and I use it to water my plants. Okay, I am not an earth-hating person. I do not want to be an evil capitalist and destroy the planet. I do think that man is doing many things to destroy our planet, like growing the deserts and destroying the forests and, and, and draining our aquifers. So please, for the love of God, don't try to convince me otherwise because it wouldn't change how I act anyway. And that's what I want you to understand here. This global warming BS, this stuff with this, is causing people to act irrationally, right? And they're polarizing people that should be in agreement that, do we want less coal? Yes. Why? Because of our carbon footprint? No. Because of mercury, because of sulfur oxide in our water system, because of mountaintop removal, because of what strip mining does. All right, there's a, 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 you know, it's one of the most dirty energy in the world. There's a million reasons to stop coal other than global warming. So why global warming? Because then we can blame carbon and then we can place a tax. All right. I want to tell you something else. This is going to be the last time I'm going to go into this on depth on the show. When there's a, a something needs to be mentioned about it, I'm going to just mention it and move on. I'm not going to explain myself again. Sometime in the next two to three weeks, I'm going to do a video about this. I'm going to explain cap and trade. I'm going to explain the source of this. I'm going to explain why I don't believe in it. I'm going to do it one time. It's going to be about a 15 to 20 minute video. I'm going to put it on YouTube. And when I hear from anybody about it one way or the other, I'm going to say, here's what I think. I can't do it anymore. But this thing has become a cult, a religious cult, because no matter what you tell a true believer, they'll come back and say, but it's still true. Climate gate, doesn't matter, still true. Got it started it. Got it started it. Oil billionaire trading carbon credits in China right now. That's the guy, Maurice Strong, not Al Gore. Come out of the UN, started out as global cooling, changed it when the temperatures didn't work anymore. Right? Doesn't matter. So let me read the latest one to you. This isn't the fact that, and the other one I'm not even going to really talk about today was the guy that did all the studies about the dying polar bears because they were drowning. And I told you polar bears can swim. I told you they can swim 20 miles offshore and they don't care. The polar bears were fine. Jack Spirico was right. The scientist was wrong. He's under investigation for lying right now. All right. Well, what else came out it's almost the same day? Here it is. And here's, you know, it's from one of these, you know, typical right-wing conservative think tanks that, that, that just wants to disprove global warming called NASA. You know, NASA, the government-funded organization that's not supposed to come up with this, this answer. New NASA data blows gaping hole in global warming alarmism. Uh, again, this is this is on Forbes. Uh, NASA satellite data from the years 2000 through 2011 shows the Earth's atmosphere is far uh, allowing far more heat to be released into space than alarmist computer models have predicted. Reports a new study in a peer-reviewed science journal, Remote Sensing. The study indicates that less future global warming will occur than the United Nations computer models have predicted, and supports prior studies indicating that increases in atmospheric carbon dioxide trap far less heat than alarmists have claimed. Study co-author Dr. Roy Spencer, a principal research scientist at the University of Alabama in Huntsville and U.S. science team on NASA's Aqua Satellite reports, the real-world data from NASA's Terra Satellite contradict multiple assumptions fed into the alarmist computer models. 
Quote, the satellite observations suggest there is more energy lost to space during and after warming than climate models show. Spencer said, July 26th, University of Alabama press release. Quote, there is a huge discrepancy between the data and the forecast that is especially big over the oceans. You can read the rest of the article for yourself. This is something I've said over and over again. I'm going to say again, I'm going to do this one more time in depth on the show. So if you don't like it, it's the last time you're going to have to hear it. Please listen to me, though. Please listen to me because this is the most credible evidence ever that my side of this debate is right. And this is real science. This isn't my opinion. This is from freaking NASA. What I've said for years and one of the arguments for years, and everybody says, it's discredited because somebody has a theory about this. CO2 has what's called a saturation limit. As light comes down and heat comes down to the planet and it's radiated back out to space, there are many things that trap warming on the planet. The biggest thing is water vapor. That is the number one reason the planet stays warm, water vapor. Another one is methane. Of all of them, one of the least global warming trapping gases is CO2. And it only picks up certain wavelengths of light. Therefore, the majority of the heat that's going back through CO2 does not hold in. It only picks up what we would call its favorite wavelengths. Very small amount of CO2 will pick them all up. We have enough to pick them all up. Additional CO2 does very little to hold any more back because it can't affect the other wavelengths of light. The counter-argument has been, but CO2 acts differently high in the trophosphere than down in the lower levels of the atmosphere. And that up higher, it holds more in. Okay? Well, so NASA turns their satellites and says, of how much heat comes in, how much comes back out, and determines that it doesn't. That's the upshot here, that it doesn't. The, the way they're doing this, instead of measuring the temperature on the planet, is... Of, you know, if X goes in and Y comes out, then, then Z is what's held back. So this is real science saying, doesn't work the way that we've been told it works. This is not something you're going to be easily able to write off. And this is why I call this a religion. It's already being done. It's already being discredited. It's being discredited because somebody says so. Please, I'm going to ask you today, if you believe in this thing, to take a new look at it. And understand that you can throw this whole thing away. You can throw away all your belief in global warming and not throw away one important thing that we would do to save this planet from additional pollution and additional destruction and from our nation from the dependence on the foreign energy sources that we're dependent on. That you could still, you know what? Long before anybody was saying this crap, it was still important that we took care of our environment. Pollution was still real. We have replaced real pollution, mercury, sulfur, dioxins, trioxins. Okay? We've replaced that with carbon. So I'm going to ask you today, if you have been a true believer in this, please consider reevaluating your stance and reading this. And I'll tell you to look forward to my video where I'll explain every single reason that I don't believe in this nonsense and every single reason that I call it a religion and every single reason I think we need to still do every single thing that the global warming movement tells us we need to do except one, tax carbon. That's the only part I disagree with on the action side. The reason I even bring up the belief side is I don't care what you say. If you impose a tax at a global level, you have a global government. The only reason your government in your state, your city, your county, or your nation has authority over you is their ability to tax. Every single law they create, 
enforce. Every program they put up has to be funded, and it's funded out of your pocket and my pocket through taxation. When you create a global tax, you create a global government. I like my sovereignty, and I'd like to keep it, please. So, solar panels, yes. Okay, Reducing coal mines, yes. Saving our aquifers, yes. Planting more trees, yes. Okay, Wind energy, yes. Geothermal, yes. Smaller carbon footprints, not because I'm worried about the carbon, because if we do smaller carbon footprints, we have more independence, yes. Belief in a religion called science, where all the supporting science has been funded by a government that told the people how to think before they gave them the money, no. And let me remind you of a quote, I don't remember who said it, and I'm paraphrasing. But when one hand gives money to another, the hand doing the giving is always in control because the hand doing the giving is always higher than the hand receiving. Consider the sources. Read this latest report. Again, this is about how much heat goes back out. And to have global warming because of carbon trapping the heat, the heat would have to stay in. There's no way around this one, and yet everybody in the faith will hold true to the faith unless you think for yourself. All right, and I promise you, that will be the last time that I go into this. And the reason it's a survival topic is our freedom is paramount if we are to survive as a nation and as a people. Our freedom is important. And every time government in any capacity grows, freedom shrinks. And this is the greatest potential for the increase in government ever to hit the planet. Because it creates a new fiat currency, a new fiat tax system, and it will erode what's left of our national sovereignty. And it will erode what's left of many nations' national sovereignty, not just our own. So let's all do right by the environment and stop worrying about our exhaled gas. All right, let's go on to the next one. Quick inspiring story from a listener uh, from Brian in Oregon. Brian says... Hi, Jack. Well, we're finally taking a big step toward our goal. The house is expected to close next month. We've paid cash on a 32-foot fifth wheel to move into. We're expecting this move to not only give us a little more general freedom, but help save us a lot of money toward finishing off the debt, saving cash for that rural property purchase. Doing this move to the RV is a way that I can continue to work in the city as the parks where we would uh, we would host are within an hour of my job. The wife is working to get us on as a camp host with Oregon State Parks where we will get into a program and we'll have free rent, electric, water, sewer, and garbage, and internet access. The only thing we'd have to pay for is satellite TV and propane for the stove. Even with the longest commute and spending more gas, we expect this move to save us two to $3,000 a month. Good for you, Brian. Um, our plan is to save up for a year or two and find a little remote property with a well, septic, and maybe power to start parking the RV on. I'll throw up a pole barn and eventually look at building a cabin or moving a manufactured home onto it. Moving into the RV means we'll be able to take these steps and pay cash for most of these purchases and upgrades. Also, if things get nuts around here, it's that much easier to just load up and head down the road. You've never experienced freedom until you've made the realization that all you have to do to move is close up the sides of the RV, Hook up a tow vehicle and drive. Yes, I'll still be tied down to the job, but if some other opportunity arises, that would be that would require relocation. I'm now much more able to jump at the chance. 
I'm going to say none of this. I'm not going to say none of this would have happened without you. But TSP and the community have definitely helped cement our plans and give us the strength to start making these life-altering changes. And since this wasn't sent in the normal channel, I asked if I could read it on the air. Here was Ryan's response: Feel free. If I can help motivate others to get out of get out of park, I'm happy to do so. I'd only add that it's a scary thing to totally pick up like this and change your life, but it's also so exciting at the same time. What blew me away about the whole thing was after the first few RVs we looked at, the wife actually started dragging me around to look at them. She's as excited, if not more excited, than I am. Now we're actually a little upset that we have to wait a few more weeks before we can drive away as we have to finish selling our house first. Believe me, when we hit those state parks, you can be sure there'll be some guerrilla gardening going on. We also expect to be able to learn about a lot about nature and how to get along with it from direct interaction as well as educational opportunities we'll get from the state parks department. I'll send you more updates as we progress toward our goals. Brian, I'm so freaking happy for you, and I don't think that's the way everybody's going to do it. But everybody that gets free, man, I just love to hear about it. So share your stories with me, and I read it because if Brian can do it, you can do it. Maybe not the same way, but、uh, you can do it too. Moving on to another one, real quick here. This is from Time Magazine. I'm going to read two paragraphs to you, and then I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to change just a couple words. Can a nation with a trillion-dollar economy be running out of money? That startling question is forcing itself upon every government official who must shape a budget from the president down to the head of the smallest local mosquito abatement district. By most measures of private wealth, the U.S. is the world's richest economy. But in terms of its ability to pay for public services, healthcare, education, welfare, garbage pickup, pollution control, police and fire protection that make up the life of its citizens, to make the life of its citizens president. Pleasant, or at least tolerable, or in some cases even possible, the country sees almost seems almost to be going broke. This anomaly has led to come as a bitter shock. Americans have long thought they had the resources to accomplish practically any goal they set for themselves. Political liberals have argued for years that economic growth could pay for the vast improvement in housing, healthcare, and education programs, and leave an ample margin for tax cuts beside. Only a few, only a few years ago, liberals and conservatives alike thought that the major question of public finances was how best to use、uh, our surplus in our budget、uh, that they expected to remain constant. Okay, I'll leave it at that. Okay, so does that sound like today? Does that sound like all this talk about the debt ceiling and spending and cutting? Let me read the first two sentences again, and then read the last sentence again, and put the actual. Words in there. Could a nation with a trillion-dollar economy be running out of money? I said trillion. I should have clued you in on the first place. That startling question is forcing itself upon every government official who must shape a budget from budget from President Nixon down to the head of the smallest mosquito abatement district. The final line: Only a few few years ago, liberals and conservatives alike thought that they that that the major question of public finance was going to be how to use the quote peace dividend. Of a thirty billion dollar a year dividend that they expected the U.S. to collect once the Vietnam War ended.、Uh, today, that hubris has drowned in a rising sea of red ink. In 1970, the federal, state, and local governments spent sixty billion more than they took in, and that deficit certainly yawned wider last year. Let me read that one to you again. In 1970, the federal, state, and local governments spent sixty billion more than they took in. Sixty billion. Today we're talking trillion-dollar deficits just for the federal government. Because let me read it again: in 1970, the federal, state, and local governments, the 
total deficit of all governments in 1970 was $60 billion. Today's $60 billion won't run most individual departments of the federal government. Most individual departments of the federal government are bigger than $60 billion. This is what insurance has done, or um, this is what inflation has done to us. Uh, they have a little Beatles song called The Tax Man, a couple of lines out of it. And I want you to re- think about this one. If you drive a car, I'll tax the street. If you try to sit, I'll tax your seat. If you get too cold, I'll tax the heat. If you take a walk, I'll tax your feet. That's The Tax Man from the Beatles. This is why I even bring it up with global warming, folks. They had a 60 billion dollar deficit. Now they have a multi-trillion dollar deficit. Their solution, tax more and borrow more. And it ain't going to change. We have to draw the line in the sand somewhere. Taxing the air that we breathe is where I draw the line. I'll put a link into this article. I think that maybe you should take a look at it and read it today. It's actually a very long article. Again, it's from Time Magazine. It's from the 70s. Uh, it's actually from Monday, March 13th, 19. 19- 1972. In fact, this actually, this article was written several months before I was born because my birthday is tomorrow. August 2nd, 72, Jack Spirger was born. March 13th, 1972, Time Magazine asks the question, can a nation with a trillion dollar economy be running, economy being running out of money? How little things have actually changed. Why do you think I haven't spent a whole lot of time talking about this debt ceiling stuff in the past couple months? little bit of humor and a look at um, what people do when they're hungry and how they will find food no matter what it takes uh, comes to us from Greg, and it's from the Brooklyn paper. Your neighborhood, your news. you got to listen to this because this is clearly written by somebody that wanted to report an interesting story, but it's also kind of must be just a nut job to, to some of the terms used here. Cops have busted a group of oddball poachers in Prospect Park, a band of vagrants that was trapping and eating ducks, squirrels, and pigeons. Park officials wrote four tickets, two for killing wildlife and two for illegal fishing, totaling $2,100 in fines during a two-day period last week. The city would not immediately release details of the incidents, which occurred on July 17th and 18th, just days after parkgoers told rangers about, quote, Beverly Hillbillies, unquote like seen on the southeast side of the lake near the ice skating rink. This is a dodgy group, said the park goer Peter Colin, who spotted one of the men catching a pigeon while his friend started a fire. Let me let me read the next line to you. This is how screwed up America has become. I'm not saying these guys should be killing pigeons in a, in a city park, um, but the pigeons are you know flying rats, basically. But let's just accept that. But just listen to the next line that just Peter Colon has to say. They are the most threatening people in the park. Most dangerous thing in a Brooklyn park, Prospect Park, is a guy killing a pigeon. (laughs) I guess this dude's never been mugged. Anyway, the disheveled and possibly homeless tribe question, tribe in question uses makeshift fishing poles and traps to catch the critters and then grills them over a fire according to park watchdogs. One woman uses a net to bag the ducks, said wildlife advocate Jonathan Johanna Clearfield, wildlife advocates have long pushed for the park department to crack down on illegal hunting and fishing in Prospect Park, especially after a stunning array of cases in which geese and saigets were injured in illegal barbed fish hooks with a, by an illegal barbed fish hook lure. The most dramatic case, a plucky little goose who lost the top of half of his beak to a fish hook, earned the endless sympathy and the nickname Beaky. 
The fishing and hunting ticket blitz comes while park goers collect and document large mounds of fishing wire, claiming waterfowl are uh, claiming waterfowl are frequently get tangled, and that is dangerous. You should never leave fishing line around because uh, it's sad to see you know a life go to waste the way that they do when they get tangled in the line. It doesn't actually happen as much as the uh, the green police tell you that it does though. The fishing and hunting, okay, and it's not the first time that the poachers have been busted. Last year's uh, park goers confronted a man after spotting him catching fish and uh, secreting them into a bag. God forbid he should fish. I mean, some of this other stuff maybe, but ugh, they have a catch and release rule for the fish. You know, you're not allowed to fish in your own park that you're tarp fan anyway. After being confronted, the man dumped the dead fish back into the lake. So they made him put the dead fish back. That did a lot. The new poaching bus bring to mind last year's wave of animal murders by the so-called. Butcher of Prospect Park, whose death toll included waterfowl, chicken, turtles, and a goat. God, let me read that to you again. The new poaching brings back to mind last year's wave of animal murders by the so-called Butcher of Prospect Park, whose death toll included waterfowl, chicken, turtles, and a goat. For now, wildlife advocates were hailing this month's bust. The fact that their ticketing is great, it's so badly needed, said Goose Lover Mary Beth Arts. I hope they keep it up. Well, Mary Beth Arts and Mr. Cologne and all you other idiots that think it's going to help to ticket these people, they're homeless. They don't have any money. They don't have a home. They're hungry. The only way they're going to stop killing little squirrels and geeses and ducks is for somebody else to kill them for them on a farm and feed them. Ticketing these people will do nothing. And if you call someone who kills ducks and geese and waterfowl to eat and turtles, because they're such great things to have in our ponds when they overpopulate, uh, the butcher of Prospect Park, you are a freaking moron. And if you say that he is murdering, you must work for PETA. So this is interesting, and I do think as preppers, it gives us a little look at what would happen if people got really hungry everywhere. And let me ask you a question. If you're going to starve tonight, and you can go kill something and eat it, do you care if you get a ticket or do you care if you eat and this is how society is disconnected from reality. You should read this article for yourself. I think even the way I read it to you, you'll get more out of it if you read it for yourself. A uh, real quick one here. Um, remember the CDC thing on zombies? Well, um, James sent me a link, and I'll put it in today's show notes. If you would like your own zombie poster uh, talking about being prepared and not being a zombie, the CDC will send you up to five of them for free, and you can download a PDF. And they have several other uh, posters that you can get from the CDC for free on uh, prepping. It's called Preparedness 101. Get a kit. Uh, Preparedness 101, don't be a zombie. And uh, you can get large ones or small ones there each, and you can have up to five of each one absolutely free for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Again, that will be in today's show notes. Uh, here's a question on guns. Let's go off to something a little bit different. Jack, thanks for all you do. I really appreciate it a lot. But I got a quick question. I'm looking to buy a new handgun. I don't particularly like a Glock, but I'm considering it on the grounds of the fact that it's very common. So if there were any, there would be a shit at the fan scenario or massive government confiscation crackdown. I would be able to find compatible parts and magazines easier than less common firearms. I shoot okay with them, but in general I prefer the longer trigger pull of single action, double action mechanism. 
Do you think the ability to fly in common parts should be a big factor in my search for a new handgun? Do you think the government or situ or situationally induced shortages of parts magazine manufacturers likely to be an issue? Thanks again. Uh, I think anything could go into shortage, Richard, and that's why I store food. So if you want to make sure you have extra magazines for your handgun, buy extra magazines. If you want to make sure that you have parts to fix common repairs, make sure you buy a set of parts for your handgun and then buy and carry what you like best. I wouldn't carry any handgun because somebody might have a part for me if the shit hits the fan. I, I think that's a bad decision. And I would never make my decision based on that. I do think that some of the potential is out there, but if the government starts confiscating guns, uh, we've got totally different problems in making sure we get repair parts. Uh, we've got a problem we've got to fight because we have the Constitution not just being violated, but basically shredded right in front of our own faces. Uh, I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying that having a Glock or an, M, uh, an AR or anything else that's really common or an AK is not the solution in that instance. I would carry and arm myself with what I most want for my own personal needs, my own personal desires, and my own personal situation. Uh, I don't have a problem with the common uh, parts theory, and one of the things you may want to consider is in good times, when their parts are common and easily available, they cost less. So that might be a consideration economically, but I'm not going to buy a particular gun I don't particularly care for just because somebody in the next trench over might have one if we're fighting Red Dawn. I don't suggest you do that either. Very cool story from a listener today. Uh, this one comes from Anonymous. I guess he didn't believe I'd only use his first name or didn't even want that much given out. Dear Jack, long-time listener, was at a party tonight where the kids, where kids' bounce house was involved. I've seen the things on TV where the bounce houses were blown away by the winds with the kids inside. Tonight it was my two-year-old and another child involved. About 20 adults were outside when high winds came up and blew the bounce house over the fence and out into the street. The house landed upside down on the street while it was going over the fence. I saw my two-year-old roll over the fence through a window. I heard screams from inside. I quickly jumped the fence and tried to find an opening to get in, not knowing if they were injured. There was no door, so I took out my Gerber EAB light and cut one of the mesh windows out and got inside. The two kids were screaming like crazy. I grabbed my kid first and handed her out through the hole, went back for the other kid and handed him through the hole. Here's the point, Jack. I would not be carrying my Gerber if you had not recommended it on your show. Everyone was okay, but I could, but it could have been a lot worse because everyone was fine. No one really thought twice about it. I did, and I'm telling you, I could make a big speech, but you know what I'm talking about. Please use the story and reword it to make more sense. But two points I want to enforce is have your EDC on you and get in shape. Thanks from Anonymous. I don't need to reword it. You told the story perfectly. And the EAB light is a little folding knife that uses a, a standard razor blade as its blade. I carry one with me all the time in addition to my neck knife, in addition to my Swiss Army knife, and my other EDC items. Uh, because I believe in having something that's always going to be razor sharp, and when that blade gets a little bit dull, I just turn it around, take screw out, flip it around. When that side gets dull, I just replace it. Uh, so that lets me save my knife from using from things like gummy uh, tape on boxes and stuff like that. So uh, definitely, and what a great story. Um, so just wanted to share that one with you. Then I've got to share this one. I'll read it. I'll put a link to where you can find it on the air as well. Uh, but I got to do this one because like it came in from like 800 people. I think that's an exaggeration, but more than 100 people sent me this. It's a Dilbert uh, strip, Dilbert cartoon strip by Scott Adams. And um, it's on prepping, and I guess that's why so many people sent it in. Um, Dilbert says to this uh, the, the pyramid head-shaped lady, and we'll just call her that, 
I'm preparing for a complete meltdown of our financial system. And he says, I've got six months worth of food and water. I have batteries, flashlights, and gold coins. Then the, the pyramid hair-shaped lady says, I'm prepared too. I have your home address. And I've noticed your preparations are light on defensive weaponry. And then she fills up her coffee cup and says to him again, can you add some protein bars to the shopping list? And there is some humor there, but you know what I've told you before. If your plan is when the shit hits the fan, you're going to go to somebody else's house that's already prepared. Odds are the prepared person will not be light on their home defense strategy. And there won't be enough for you all anyway. And somebody else may have already had that plan. We all need to be prepared for ourselves. Interesting to see prepping getting out more and more mainstream. When something starts to get into something like Dilbert, that means people are paying attention to it. So that's interesting. Uh, here's listener feedback from Matthew. Jack, love the show. Well, I don't agree with you 100% of the time. <laughs> Who does? I mean, seriously, if you agree with me 100% of the time, please go see your psychologist or psychiatrist of your choice now because you are mentally deranged if you agree with everything I say. You must think for yourself. So anyway, while I still don't agree with you 100% of the time, I still respect your opinion and always you make me think. My first question is, I'm a 24-year-old Army vet, soon to be a retiree, and my wife and our planning are Our next move to after my retirement. We want to stay in the local Fort Bragg area, but the move more we war game different scenarios, the more we feel that being close proximity to a military base, especially one as big as Bragg, may not be the best place for any prolonged event. Do you think there are downsides to being close to a military base, or should you think, or, or should you think we should put some distance away? Uh, I wouldn't want to be there. If you want to do it, I'm not going to fault you. I'm not going to tell you it's a bad thing. I'm not going to tell you it's a terrible thing. I'm just going to tell you I personally would not do it. Uh, I think there's a couple things. One, if there's a national emergency, it's very possible that the borders of a base will be increased immediately and people forced off of their own property. Uh, for additional security purposes. Not definite, but it is possible. Also, if the major shit hits the fan ever occurs and everybody thinks everybody's going to go out and steal Farmer Joe's corn, I'm telling you what society has a history of doing. When the shit hits the fan, people go to areas of support, and that means they will run to large cities and military bases, which means you're more likely to come across the roving hordes on their way to Fort Bragg to beg for MREs than you are to come across the roving hordes out in your little rural field of corn. And it's just reality. It's just the way it is. Most of the people that will be roving and looking for food wouldn't know what to do with corn if they saw it on the plant anyway. So I personally wouldn't do it. But there might be some really cool places out in the area. And if you like the area, I would just say I definitely wouldn't buy any land that borders it. And I would try to get at least at least 10 miles from any land that borders any part of it. And I would try to get at least 20 to 30 miles away from any land that borders kind of the occupied part, where the troops are, the gates are, and things like that. You know, your back ranges and things like that. You know, you can you can uh, you can you can probably be a little closer and be safe there. But that area of immediate expansion is going to be around the ops area. All right. Um, next question, though, he has for me. Matt also says, also, if I squeeze another question in quickly, do you think the government will ever stop paying military veterans their benefits, or will be some of the last ones to be dropped? You, here's what you need to know about government. This is what you need to know about government when government actually stops paying its bills. 
the first people they say they may not be able to pay will be the last people they don't pay. So in our situation, if they don't raise the debt ceiling by my birthday tomorrow, woohoo! And I, that's my birthday present. Stop raising the debt, and it'll never happen. I won't get that. Um, but if they ever do, and they have to make choices, the first thing to do is threaten the people that we all know we need to pay, like Social Security recipients and and people that hold our bonds and our military uh, active duty and veterans. They'll be the last people to not get paid. So I'm not worried that you won't get your your retirement, but they will monkey with it. They will reduce the raises that you get over time. Right now, we're going to see austerity and, and you know ushered in. They're going to cut a lot of spending. They really are in the entitlement world. And do you know how you get people that would never accept austerity to accept austerity? Pretend you're fighting about it and make them beg you for it. And that's what a lot of this political theater has been. And they're going to cut, severely cut, the growth thereof of a lot of these programs. But they're going to keep borrowing. I'll save my real thoughts on this for later, where the risk comes in, because it's not just for the veterans and the Social Security that the risk comes in. The risk comes in for the whole nation. We'll get to that a little bit later in the show. Told you we were going to be going longer uh, than usual. This one comes from Ted, and he actually sent me two links. I'm just going to read one of them to you. And this is on MSNBC, which is usually not where you hear the truth. You're hearing it here. And the hard title of the uh, article is 10 Signs That the Double Dip Recession Has Begun. Many Americans believe the 2008-2009 downturn never ended. Friday's news on GDP shows a double dip has arrived. The expansion of only 1.3% and consumer spending up only 0.1% in the second quarter. Astonishingly low by any account, the debt ceiling trouble and lack of a longer-term resolution to the deficit will only make it worse. Yes, blame the debt ceiling. Just like, uh, remember back in the, in the early 90s, everything that happened in the weather, we blamed it on El Nino, right? So now it's blame the debt ceiling. Well, they'll have a deal for you soon. We won't go into that right now, but they will. And then we can start like going, well, what's the real problem when the debt ceiling is not the problem anymore? Uh, they'll probably still blame the debt ceiling in the future of it. Blah, 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 blah. But I'm going to give you the short side of this one here, the 10 signs that we are still in a recession or going into the double dip of a recession. Number one, inflation. There's almost nothing that damages consumer confidence as badly as a rapid rise in prices. Starbucks recently increased the price of a bag of coffee by 17%. This is the important part because wholesale prices have risen by almost twice that rate in the last year. Remember what I was telling you all through this time when they were saying there's no inflation. The inflation's there. The companies are just holding it back as long as they can before they pass it through, that eventually it would pass through, and then we would see it in a rapid spike. So there you go. Number two, investments have less yield. Part of the recovery was driven by a stock market surge, which began when the Dow Jones Industrial Average bottomed below 7000 in March 2009, which you didn't lose your money in if you listen to me. The index has risen above 12000 and the prices of many stocks have doubled from their lows. As a result, America's household nest eggs that were decimated by collapse of the market have rebound and enable people to splurge on themselves. However, the market has stumbled in the last quarter. The DJA is uh, DJIA is up only 1% during the last three months, and the S&P is down slightly. So lower returns of investment. The auto industry has staged an impressive comeback, although its profitability is based on much of its layoffs, and it has made over the, la has made over the last five years generating new sales. Uh, GM and Chrysler have emerged from bankruptcy year over year. Monthly sales improved late last year through April. May st sales have stalled, so auto sales are down. 
Oil prices are supposed to drop as the economy slows, as they did in 2008 and in early 2009 when crude fell from 140 to 150 bucks. The drop at least allowed consumers and businesses like airlines to move more easily afford fuel. Even though the airline said, we had to raise the prices because the fuel went up, so we had to charge you for your bags, and then the fuel went down and they're still charging you for your bags, so we all know they're full of crap. Recently, crude has moved back above $100 and appears to be stuck there regardless of the economic situation. So oil is over 100 bucks, even though the economic indicators don't support it. Federal budget deficit has decimated any chance for another economic stimulus package. So, no more free monopoly money from the government. China's economy has slowed, number six. Uh, number seven, unemployment uh, has creates two immediate problems. People without jobs drastically curtail their spending. You jerks that lost your jobs, why won't you keep spending money? We would fix, if you guys need to spend money, everything would be okay. That's what they're saying here. Which will ultimately affect GDP growth. The second is the need for tens of billions of dollars every year in government aid to keep the unemployed from becoming destitute. <sighs> Debt ceiling. The United States debt ceiling currently at $14.294 trillion will probably be raised before the government has to cut back essential services on August 2nd. It might seem that the economic and employment effect of the debt cap are the same as the deficit, but they are actually much more insidious and longer term. The first byproduct of debt reduction, at least, is or at least a slowdown in its growth, is a combination of higher taxes and a lower level of government services. Pay more to get less. Well, that's not going to happen with this deal. You're not going to pay more to get less. You're just going to get less. You're going to keep paying as much as you are, which is too much. That's if this deal goes through the way it's going to do now, and assuming they don't raise our taxes in any other way, like by taxing carbon or you know something like that. Anyway, access to credit. The lack of access to credit has hurt economic activity, both individuals and small businesses. So the broke people can't that are too much in debt can't borrow anymore. That's hurting the economy. Number 10, housing. Housing is considered by many economists to be the single largest drag on the American economy. And you can read the rest of the article for yourself. It's actually a fairly well-written article. It's fairly accurate in its assessment of things. But this is what gets me. See, the Keynesian concept here is if we could just borrow more money and get more credit out there and unplug this debt ceiling thing and just borrow, 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 we would fix everything. This is kind of like you know going into an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and saying, you know what, if we just let all these people drink, no one would have a problem anymore because we wouldn't wor worry about quitting anymore. Maybe more accurately, um, we have a really big problem with DUIs, man. The DUI rate is too high. Why don't we just raise the legal limit on drinking to like 2.0? I got a great idea. Let's let's raise it to like or point point oh two, well point two oh instead of point one point oh point oh one, right? Why don't we raise it to like point five, right? We raise it to point five. That's one half percent of your blood is alcohol. You're dead. So if we raise it that high, everybody that gets that drunk will be dead or passed out or unable to drive before they get there. So there'll be no more DUIs because no one will be driving under the influence illegally anymore because it's not possible. That's what raising debt in a time like this is really like, borrowing more. Uh, but we're at a point where we kind of have to. Somebody's going to write me and explain that to me. I get it. I get it. Unless we change the system. All right? Um, next question, another firearms question here. Jack, I know you've mentioned your own, you own this particular rifle, uh, referencing the Keltec Sub 2K 9mm. Uh, I'm considering this is my next purchase. I'm trying to decide between this and a High Point 995 TS Carbine. If you have any experience with the High Point, I'd welcome your thoughts on it as well. Well, you're in luck, Kevin. I own the Caltech Sub 2K, and I own the High Point 995. The only reason to buy the High Point over the Caltech is because you can't afford the Caltech. That's it. 
Uh, the Keltec is a vastly superior tool. It folds up compact. It would fit in a in a in a jacket. I mean, you could have a, a you know a jacket with a liner with a long zipper, and you could slide the Keltec in there and carry it that way. It would fit in a backpack. It fits in a standard uh, laptop case. If you have a laptop case that allows uh, for a 16-inch or larger laptop, the Keltec will fit in there. Uh, I had a little rolling briefcase that fit in there perfectly. It, you can get it to take Sig magazines or Glock magazines, uh, and I think there's one other manufacturer's magazines you can get it in which means you can get high-capacity magazines in large quantities, and they'll function reliably. Uh, the high point does have a higher-than-the-10-capacity mag that comes with it, but none of them work very well except for the standard 10-capacity magazines. Now, you can fiddle with them and make them work. People monkey around with them and all, uh, but the high point is ugly. It's heavy. It's fun as hell to shoot, and it's dirt-freaking-cheap. And you can buy two-and-a-half of them for the price of the Caltech. So economically, they're 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 cool. Uh, they're a great little toy. I mean, they are. They're fun as hell to shoot the uh, the high point carbine. I would actually tell you that they're a little bit more manageable to shoot, and overall, your accuracy is probably a little bit better with them. But they're such a you know they're short, but they're still kind of a full size, somewhat heavy gun. So if you know the only thing you're doing there is getting a cheap rifle form, um, you know you could. You could have a um, an AR, uh, you know, with a 16 inch barrel that's basically the same size as the nine millimeter high point. Uh, so you'd have much more firepower in the same basic size. In fact, the AR will actually come apart and pack more compactly uh, than than the high point. Now the high point costs a hell of a lot less. So the only reason to buy that is because you just want one and they're fun, or because it's all you can afford. And if you're down between the Caltech Sub 2K and the High Point 995, the Keltec wins a thousand different ways. Storability, uh, magazine availability, um, overall form factor, rate of fire, uh, I would just say rate of fire, but capacity for rate of fire by having a, a higher magazine capacity, uh, standard availability of accessories, and for what it is, to me it's a better tool. When you use a carbine in pistol caliber, you're taking a big step back from what a carbine could be, okay? Because a carbine with a you know a two two three or a, 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 let's say the uh, seven six two round, whether it's you know the seven six two thirty nine or uh, three oh eight or, or anything like that, or fifty four R, whatever, your your firepower is drastically reduced when we go down to a handgun caliber. We put a 16-inch barrel there. We get a little bit more velocity out of a 9-millimeter. If we do the, the sub uh, uh, Keltec Sub-2K and we go with the 40 Smith & Wesson version of it, we actually get muzzle velocities equivalent uh, with 40 Smith & Wesson equivalent to the 10-millimeter. Uh, so that might be another thing that you would look at. And a 10-millimeter with the right ammunition, so the 40 with the right ammunition, is suitable for hunting small, game, small to medium-sized game up to including deer-sized you know, deer game. So you get more flexibility if you go with that 40 Smith on the 9mm because I got a good deal on it. It was the one that they had available at the gun show I went to. Um, but everything about the Keltec's better. Everything. Reliability, um, dependability, form factor. And that smaller form, if I'm going to drop down to that in a carbine, 
The only reason I'm going to accept a pistol caliber in my carbine is to get a really small, lightweight, easy-to-deploy form factor. And boy, does the Caltech give you that. It is one of my favorite uh, weapons in my collection. It really is. And it is so ever-love and flexible. Far more flexible than the high point will ever be. I don't hate high points. I don't bash high points. I've got a high point C9. I've got a high point 995. I think they're both great cheap guns for shooting and, and messing around with and, and having something as a backup. And honest to God, if we're ever in a gun seizure situation where I have to choose either give up my guns or shoot back, I'd rather hand them the C9 and the 995 and a busted old single shot and go, it's all the guns I got here, guys, and uh, and, and just not mention the other ones. So, um, you know, with a high-point pistol, if you run out of ammo, you can always throw it at a guy. You'll probably kill him from the weight of the damn thing. Uh, but, um, but high points are cool, but they're cheap. If you've got the funding, go with the Keltec. Um, the next one for you uh, comes from not one of my audience, but a student from Frank Sharp Jr.'s, uh, one of his courses uh, from Fortress Defense Consultants, and specifically you know, a medical uh, course. Uh, and it's called Ready or Not. This is from a student by proxy. This week I've been teaching vacation Bible school at my church. Last night we had a new kid, a little boy age 7, run into a garbage dumpster outside. He sliced a sizable gash in the top of his head. The pastor's wife took him into the bathroom. He was bleeding profusely. I ran to my car and retrieved the single IBD, Israeli Battle Dressing, that I took home from your TTGSW class. Tactical treatment of gunshot wounds just one week ago. By the time I got to the bathroom, the boy's face and arms, shirt, pants, the floor, the toilet paper, and the sink were all dripping with blood. The pastor's wife was trying to be helpful, but she had no idea what to do and was verging on panic as she was unable to get the bleeding stopped. I straightaway took over, brushing her aside, quickly applying the IBD to the boy's head, exactly as I was shown in your class. Bleeding stopped immediately, but it was obvious that we would have to get the boy to the ER for stitches. The church building had no trauma kit anywhere, nor did I have one in my car. I only had a single IBD, but it probably saved the kid's life. I was asked by several other parents, where did you learn this? What did that? Where did that come from, referring to the IBD? Wow, you're prepared for anything. Actually, I was only marginally prepared, but well, relatively well prepared compared with everyone else there. The boy is fine. The, is, the ER doctor also asked where I got the IBD. He had never seen one either. I now have a complete trauma kit in my car and another in our home, along with a case of IBDs. We're also putting one together for the church building. Several members of our church will be attending your next class. Lesson number one, never assume others will be prepared for anything, even for the most minor emergency. Be adequately personally prepared all the time. It's always a come-as-you-are war. Number two, reasonably foreseeable security and medical emergencies need to be anticipated beforehand and planned for. Every adult in your family needs to be completely equipped, supplied, and trained. Number three, days of interdependence are long gone. You are always the first responder. Take your responsibility seriously. Lives depend on it, including your own. So I thought that was an awesome letter uh, from Frank Sharp Jr., one of his students at Fortress Defense Consultants, and a good reason to consider the type of training he offers there. Think about this. The, the, the training was uh, what to do for a gunshot wound, right? That's a, you know, If there's somebody shot, this is how to take care of them and keep them alive. But the, tr- the training for that is the same as anything where severe trauma is induced and bleeding is, rel- you know, is present. 
And that's exactly what we had here. We had somebody bleeding profusely. And I don't care if you're bleeding from a gunshot wound, a knife, or a garbage dumpster. When enough blood comes out of your body, you're freaking dead. Now, some of you out there might be wondering what this Israeli ba uh, battle dressing is. And uh, uh, you, you might think that it's some kind of a blood clotting tool. And it's really not. It's a pressure bandage. Basically, the way it differs from like a standard pressure bandage, instead of having like two tails, you kind of like basically the old style uh, first aid dressings we used in the army. It was like a, a a patch, and then there was like two tails of mucilin, and you would wrap one one way and one the other way to eventually tie a knot on top of it. This thing has one tail, and you can put it on like an ace bandage. If you've ever done an ace bandage, you know how easy it is to get good tension and pressure there. Um, and then there's a locking bar on it, and that is an anchor point for the wrapping. So when you start it, it's really easy to kind of lock it on and get the tension there. And then instead of tying a knot, the end is fastened with Velcro. So these are great pressure bandages is basically what they are. And if you put enough pressure over most wounds, you can slow if not stop bleeding. So that's what this student was able to do. I think that these and quick clot belong in all your med kits. They're a little bit pricey, but they're worth it, and they save lives. Uh, so great stuff for Frank Sharp Jr. And uh, remember, Fortress, Self Def Fortress Defense Consultants is not just about learning how to shoot and learning how to, to be in armed conflict, but learning how to treat injuries. And in this case, treat an injury from a garbage dumpster, which is probably just as potentially lethal as an injury from uh, a gunshot to, wound to an extremity anyway, or to a stab wound or something else uh, suffered in a more combat-style scenario. Again, if you bleed to death, you bleed to death. Uh, so make sure that you have the equipment you need um, and things like that. Uh, last one comes in from John, and he says, Jack, you were dead on with the debt talks, as in a last-minute deal is made. Keep up the good predictions. And I don't know if it's a done deal yet, but yes, we supposedly have a deal that both sides can live with, and uh, if we can get it past filibustering in the Senate, we'll get a deal, and, and they'll raise the debt limit in two increments, and there's going to be cuts, and if they want to do it the second time, there has to be cuts, and if there's not cuts, then there's across-the-board cuts, and if we have the across-the-board cuts, then they don't apply to entitlement programs. They can cut the entitlement programs, but it won't happen by the... On and on and on and on. And here's the lesson that I don't think anybody's learned, uh, except those of us who already knew it, about the debt ceiling. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything the TV has told you for the past 90 to 120 days of this nonsensical, political, bullshit theater. It has nothing to do with scaring the old people, that they won't get their social security. It has nothing to do with scaring our soldiers, that they won't get their pay or their retirements. It has nothing to do with the ass clowns on either side of the aisle. It has to do with the fundamental reality going forward. I want you to think about this. The United States is this close, and I'm holding my fingers about an inch apart, this close to going off a financial abyss according to all of the powers that be because we may not legally allow ourselves to to borrow more money. Not because no one will give us money, but because we ourselves choose to stop borrowing. Think about this again. We are almost ready to go into financial oblivion, if you believe these people, because we will not borrow more money by our own choice. Your government takes in over a trillion dollars a year. They take in more money today than the entire economy was from that article from 1972 trillion dollars a year they take in and if they don't borrow more money they can't pay the bills 
Social Security is money that was paid in by the people receiving it and continues to be paid in today, and they can't pay it if they don't borrow more money. Think about that. They've told you that we're not raising the debt ceiling so that we can spend more money only to pay the things we've already agreed to spend money on in the past. They're not completely truthful, but they're not exactly lying either. It's basically true. What that means is we must continue to borrow. Our system is set up that way. And we're now at a point where we're in the final death rows of that Ponzi scheme. It cannot continue forever. So here's the question every American should be asking themselves right now. If with all this time leading up to it, with knowing this deadline was coming, and with all this wrangling, we cannot afford to stop borrowing money at our own choice. And if the primary source of the money that we borrow comes from people like the Chinese, and we are relying on the rest of the world to buy more of our debt to keep this thing going, what happens when we're willing to borrow more money, but people aren't willing to give it to us? No one has asked you that question in the past four to six months about in, in regard to this issue, have they? Let me make it a little bit more frightening for you. The unfunded liabilities between now and 2050, unfunded liabilities, are not $14 trillion. They're about $114 trillion. To make that up, and there's a graphic that went around last week, if you had stacks of $100 bills and $10,000 stacks, you'd have to build a stack of money as big around as the World Trade Center's towers used to be, the Twin Towers, and it would be hundreds of feet taller than the Twin Towers. That's how much money that is in $10,000 stacks of $100 bills. That's the unfunded liabilities between now and then. So, what does that mean? That even if the rest of the world wants to continue to loan us money, at some point we will borrow more than they can afford to give us. Unless we massively inflate the currency to devalue it so somebody can come in and buy, instead of going out and buying uh, a whole bunch of Chinese currency uh, per dollar, that we flip that around. We eventually have to inflate beyond the other governments, and even that can only go on so long. So what I'm saying is, let's say that your bank told you, and you had a small bank to make this a little bit more understandable. Tom, you can borrow as much money as you want. You can even borrow money to pay money back with. So you just have to make the interest on your debt payments. That's all you have to do is pay the interest on your debt, pay debts as they come to maturity, but you can borrow all the money you can spend. You can buy anything you want. You can do anything you want with it. You have an open line of currency. Now, after you've picked yourself off the floor and couldn't imagine your good luck, if you started spending and spending and spending, if you started writing checks for anything and everything that anybody out there wanted, if you walked up to homeless people on the street and go, dude, you're getting a house, and you just bought them a house for half a million dollars, here's your house. If you did that long enough, even though the bank would be constantly willing to give you more money, so you could pay your interest and pay each round of debt as it came to maturity, and then you could borrow more and do it all again. Wouldn't you at some point, if you just spent like an idiot, outspend your bank's capacity to give you money? Doesn't it make sense that you would? Now here's why technically you wouldn't. Every time you borrow money, the bank creates new money. But the reality is there is a cap on the whole thing, and that's the, the, the wherewithal of other nations to put their money into our money. And if we are at a point where we literally shut the government down because by our own choice we don't borrow anymore, what's going to happen when 
Let's say even people are willing to loan us money, but they'll only loan us 80% of what we need or 70% of what we need. Or as it continues, they continue to low, you know, lend us more and more simply because the funds aren't available. See, this isn't the reality that anybody's been discussing with anybody. And that's why I saved it for the end today. The lesson from the debt ceiling has nothing to do with compromise. It has nothing to do with cutting spending in the way that they're describing it, which is nonsensical. It has nothing to do with tax increases or tax decreases or holding the line or anything else. It's that the country is dependent on debt. That's the lesson. And I wonder how few people out there understand that. How few people out there get the fact that right now our nation is dependent upon borrowing more money every year forever until this system changes. That there's absolutely no way to even meaningfully shrink the debt. It's not possible. The interest on the existing debt itself, the existing debt itself, will total about $800 billion, almost a trillion dollars, just the interest on the existing debt. And of course, as the debt goes, the interest grows at the same time. So be prepared, folks. We can get mad about a lot of things. We can get inspired by a lot of things. But we do have to face the fundamental reality. The economy must at some point shift into a new form. It must morph. It must move. It must change. The system cannot continue as designed. Exactly what's going to happen when that occurs, I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to know. But I can tell you that the better prepared you are, the better you'll be able to deal with what will not be an end, but a massive shift where a lot of people are going to get really hurt. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
of shirt. 